Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis. So let's start talking about echoes. So when we talk about echoes, you know, you're first going to ask me, are they going to give me echoes on my boards? The answer is, it's kind of going that way. You know, I've already heard that they are giving echoes because it's not just critical care doctors using echoes. It's cardiologists, it's internists, people are using it at the bedside. I think some of my fellows actually carry portable echoes. I mean, where do they get the money for that? It's not the fellowship program, but I don't know. Anyways, when we talk about these echoes over here, um, they come in two different modes. There is an M mode, and M stands for motion, M stands for measurements, and we'll go over this mode together. And of course, there is the classic 2D mode when you're going to look at the images itself. There's definitely a button you can press if you like to do Doppler sometimes. And, you know, when we're talking about, you know, measuring velocity and how bad is the stenosis or regurgitation, we'll consider doing Doppler in some cases. And, you know, I'm going to say this now and I'll say it a thousand times, you know, that yes, there's a transthoracic and the transesophageal. And every one of us has memorized the indication for doing transesophageal. You know, I list them, a lot of them here, atrial thrombi, per prostatic valve function, vegetation. But regardless, on your board exams, in probably most cases clinically, you should always do a transthoracic echo first. And you should only order the transesophageal if it's going to change your what? Your management. Then go ahead and do one. The reason why I get so passionate about it is that I recently had someone in the medical ICU where they did a transesophageal echo and you know what? They did rupture the esophagus. And it's just, it's not easy to repair. And in fact, sometimes when it's very high up, you know, close to the cervical spine, they don't repair it. And it lets, it leads to feeding tubes and it's such a big thing. So order one, if it truly, truly is going to change your what? Management. Always start off with transthoracic echo first. So we mentioned about Doppler, you know, I don't want to get too detailed into it because it's not going to be relevant for your board exams, but Doppler could come in continuous Doppler, color Doppler. We've used that quite a bit to see if it's an artery or vein. And let me just say this now, red does not mean artery and blue does not mean vein. It's just the way the flow is going. I just wanted to say that. There's also something called a pulse Doppler. So let's go over some of the classic views of the heart, you know, and if, if I'm getting too detailed on that, we'll probably take a little break to catch our breaths, then we'll continue with this. But I would say one of my favorite views to, to start with is going to be the parasternal long axis view of the heart. This is the one that we can get in most individuals. If I were to give a board question, this is the view that I would be thinking about. So if you wanted to get the image, you know what I mean? The dot is going to be where the probe is. It has a little indentation on the probe. And it's going to be facing what? The right shoulder. It's going to be facing what? The right shoulder. Almost all the time you get most of the views, the probe is going to be facing the left shoulder. But this one faces what? The right. And what you want to do is kind of get this image up here. This is a great image. And they compare this to what the cartoon is showing. So in this parasternal long axis view, here's your left atrium. Here's going to be the mitral valve. Here is going to be the left ventricle. Here is the right ventricle. Here is the septum. Here is the LVOT, the left ventricular outflow tract. And here's your aortic valve going to the aortic arch. So when you look at it uh, under the 2D mode, 
You can see left atrium. Here's the mitral valve. I always say the mitral valve has two leaflets, the anterior and posterior. On this view, I always say that this one will be the anterior because it begins with the letter A, and A likes to be next to the aorta. So maybe that helps you. This is posterior. This is the left ventricle here. And this is a great view when you want to look for pericardial tamp nod. This is a great view when, when you want to look at injection fraction. This is a great view when we talk about, you know, people who have hokum, which is going to be hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. There are so many good views you can look at here when we get a parasternal long axis view of the heart. So right now we're going to talk about the parasternal short axis view. So, and looking at the picture of how we obtained the image, you already just got the long axis. Just take the actual probe and turn it and look at the dot right here, the green dot, it's pointing where? To the left shoulder. And what happens is you get this wonderful view looking at the cartoon over here. You're going to have the right ventricle and it really shows the right ventricle what it is. Very thin wall compared to the left ventricle. And you're going to see the symptom really well over here. And this is going to be a great view when you're kind of tilting up and down to get some of a fish mouth view to look at the mitral valve opening and closing and opening and closing. You can get a good view with the papillary muscles over here. So, and you can get a good estimate of um, the ejection fraction when you look at this. So this is going to be a parasternal short axis view of the heart. And while you're there, there's also going to be another subview called the parasternal short axis, which is going to be the aortic and PA view. And sometimes when you're there, you may get a view of the right ventricular outflow track, and you might be able to get a what they call the Mercedes-Benz sign when you look at the aortic valve, which is usually going to be a tri-leaflet valve. And one of the classic images that we see quite commonly when we talk about um, the heart is always going to be the four-chamber equable view of the heart. Even though we love this view for one reason, it actually looks like the heart itself, that it's not as easy to get. Notice that where the probe is, it's going to be down here. And notice the dot is going to be pointing where? pointing at the left shoulder. And sometimes, you know, it's always difficult when we talk about getting these images, is it going to be in a medical ICU setting? Or are we talking about an outpatient? If it's going to be an outpatient, of course, you can maneuver the patient so much easier and make him stay on their left side and lean towards you so they can actually can see the heart nicely. Sometimes when you're in a medical ICU, you're very limited in how to position these patients. So, and also, of course, who is the patient? Can you get the probe to image in between the ribs? It's sometimes harder than you think. So when you do get a nice apical, uh, four-chamber apical view, it kind of looks like the heart, so it's nice. And this is going to be the left ventricle. This is going to be the left atrium. This is the right ventricle. This is the right atrium. So this is going to be nice when we start talking about what is going to be the ejection fraction when we talk about you know, evaluating things like mitral regurgitation or tricuspid regurgitation. This is a great view of that. This is a four-chamber apical view of the heart on echocardiogram. And sometimes while you're looking for the four-chamber, you might say, oops, there is a two-chamber view by accident. And it does happen. So this is going to be the LV and the LA. And this is one of the most practical views, especially in the medical ICU. Why? It's a sub-xiphoid view. One thing that stinks about this view is that um, it 
does kind of hurt a little bit. It's going to be right under the xiphoid. You really got to push down sometimes and it may not be pleasant. Look at the probe or it's going to be pointed to the left shoulder once again. This is a four chamber view. And the reason why I say this is very practical being an ICU doctor is because during a code situation, when someone's coding nowadays, you'll be surprised. We have an ultrasound team that comes up to evaluate all these different hemodynamics. Is it a pericardial tamponade? Is it this? You know, and of course, you don't want to interrupt CPR. The CPR is the most important. So this is something you could do is uh, look at this view of the heart. Really good to detect pericardial tamponade when you're looking at this view. And when you're here looking, what you see, you see the, the left atrium, left ventricle, right atrium, right ventricle. So this is a sub-sidephoid view. Also, what can you do with this view is take the probe and you kind of just make it perpendicular. And by making it perpendicular, you could actually evaluate the IVC. Now, obviously, there are some limitations of IVC, but it's a one of the many parameters that you can look at to see if the patient's volume overloaded or not. So I did mention about the M mode. So when you actually look at your ultrasound machine, there is the letter M. You press it and you're in M mode. And I always say M stands for motion, M stands for measurements. So when up here, you see a traditional 2D view, and this is going to be a left ventricular pair, uh, uh, long axis view of the heart. And when you see this long axis view, what happens is, let's say you want to measure the thickness of the ventricular walls, you would press M mode. And what happens is the cursor would be exactly where you see the cursor here. You would see right here and time is going across. This is time going across. So what happens is you see systole, diastole, systole, diastole, systole, diastole. And you notice here on the Y axis, this is going to be measurement in centimeters. So what you can do is measure different things, measure thickness. And at the same time, it's over time, so it's detecting motion. So this is going to be the M mode. You know, I kind of forgot that this, uh, this picture is over here. So this always brings back some fond memories, kind of. Um, does anyone know on this echocardiogram view what we are looking at here, anyone? Well, you know, if you don't know, the pathology is right here, and this turned out to be a... Uh, a pericardial tamponade. It, it, it did. And the story is, you know, I won't get you all the details, but, you know, I just got my, my critical care board certification. I was so happy. And in my hospital, we had a step-down unit. And the way we use a step-down was that, you know, if there are patients that were sick, but not sick enough to be in the ICU, they would kind of go to the step-down. We would round on them the next day, you know, or later. And, and see if they're appropriately uh, placed. So we had a patient who came in, had some lung cancer and was having some shortness of breath. And we just kind of assumed, or the, the working diagnosis at the time was some kind of pneumonia. Patient had some low blood pressure. Patient was like, you know, maybe some early sepsis of anything, you know. But anyways, uh, the next day, you know, I was rounding to see how the patient was doing with my fellow. And all of a sudden there was a code. And of course, what do you do? You do CPR, lots of CPR. Of course, it was a PEARS. So what do we give? Lots of epinephrine. It's not coming back. So of course, we think of other causes. Since we're in a step-down unit, there was uh, an echo that was an ultrasound that was available. And we had this view and we see this. And of course, this turned out to be 
a pericardial effusion. Patient was in tamponade. That's why the blood pressure was very low when the patient wasn't coming back. So of course, if someone is coding and you know they have a pericardial tamponade, how, what is the next best step in that management? Of course, you want to drain it. And, you know, at the time, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, how many pericardial synthesis have I done in the acute setting? I'll, I'll tell you, the answer is uh, zero. So all of a sudden, you know, I'm all right, this is great. Let's do a pericardial synthesis. And we're like, well, who's going to do it? Are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? Who can do it? Have you tried one? Have you, you know, and all of a sudden they were, they were looking at me and they're like, well, look at your name tag. And I'm like, what does my name tag say? And they're like, it says attending doctor. And I'm like, oh, so I guess I'm going to do this procedure. So anyways, you know, I, I'm getting everyone to get set up to do this. We use a thoracentesis needle. It's an emergency situation. And I'll never forget that, you know, all the nurses in the room started doing this. Come in. I'm in different teaching case, teaching. So all these like people were like watching me do this procedure, you know? So anyways, how did we do it? You take it ultrasound guided, you press down hard sub xiphoid, you point to left shoulder and you take the uh, thoracentesis needle and you go underneath the probe pointing to the left shoulder. And so I got some flashback and I trained. So this is what I got. So number one, did I drain the pericardial effusion? The answer is, yeah. And so what, what, what are all these little, I don't know, hyperechoic dots that we see over here? You know, they're only on the right side of the heart. This is a, you know, nothing on the left, you know? So those are epinephrine. Those are medications. Like, you know, when you're pushing the meds and why are they going to be in the right side of the heart? Because even after I drained the heart, it didn't beat by itself. So because the heart wasn't beating, what do you have to do? CPR. So we continued CPR and look what happened. It left. So, you know, what happened to the patient? Yeah. You know, he passed away. I mean, I'm not going to tell you a lie. I mean, it, it's really sad. Most of these patients do very poorly, but I'll never forget, you know what I mean? That uh, these, these images and that uh, situation. So let's talk about MUGA scan. So, I put this here because on many border views, they always talk about the MUGA, you know what I mean? And I think in somewhere, someone insists that this is going to be the most accurate way to figure out what cardiac output is. And I'm not here to, to bag on it and say no. I just really want to say one thing, which is a second bullet point. It's a time-proven yet dated nuclear medicine test, you know? So when we talk about a MUGA scan, it's a multi-gated acquisition scan. It has other names to it over here that I'm not going to read to you. But essentially, how do you do the scan is that you need a radioactive marker and you inject it into the bloodstream of the patient. And these, per se, tag red blood cells, you know, they go into the patient's heart and you need to put them under a gamma camera and you kind of measure the percent of these tag red blood cells are leaving the heart to get an estimate of cardiac output. I mean, it sounds great, but it's just not what? It's just not practical. It really isn't. You know, nowadays, if you want to know how the heart is doing pretty quickly, what is the most simplest non-invasive way to get that information? Just say it, transthoracic echo. When I think about MUGA scans, I don't know about right now, but the people used to, who actually ordered it when I was in training would be oncologists, go figure, because they were giving medications like doxorubicin, and they really wanted to make sure, we know that's cardiotoxic, 
They really wanted to make sure the heart, what was the baseline? Was there any type of damage to the heart or wasn't functioning well? Because they would actually change the medication that affects how they manage their patients. But nowadays, I can be honest, I have not come across a mug of scanning quite some time. If you come across old board review books and say it's the most accurate way, I'm not doubting that. It's just not practical. It's time dated. So now we're going to go to one of my favorite topics in the whole world, which is going to be stress testing. But before we go into stress testing, just take one quick second to catch up your your notes and I'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.